0: Welcome to The Purposeful Project. We help entrepreneurs for free. On The Purposeful Project podcast, we share real-life stories from some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. We like to think our podcast will provide mentorship to those that need it and give you access to the knowledge you need to start and scale a business. To hear these incredible stories, follow us on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere you listen to podcasts, or you can simply visit purposefulproject.com. Hi everybody welcome today to today's special episode of the purposeful project podcast I'm really honored to have Yatsu the founder of many companies actually he's based in Hong Kong he's joining us today he's built a unicorn That's a company, for those that don't know, worth over a billion dollars. And not only is it an incredibly valuable company, what I think he's built is also quite revolutionary. And he's going to share with us how he did it. He's going to teach us some of his insights into business. I've had the honor of having Yat on this podcast show before, so I know how much knowledge he's got. And so without further ado, I'll bring Yat up. Yat, hi, how are you?
1: Hi, great. Uh, It's it's always a pleasure to be here with you.
0: It's awesome to have you uh, back on the podcast and um, I'm excited to to learn from you today. So I think we could kick off maybe, um, for those that don't know you, perhaps didn't listen to the previous podcast, haven't heard of of Hong Kong, perhaps tell us a little bit about who you are, what you're doing and and why you're in Hong Kong.
1: Well, I mean, uh, sort of my main occupation at the moment is I'm sort of uh, chairman and co-founder of Animoko Brands, which is a business very much involved in sort of the center of everything that's happening on digital rights and non-fungible tokens. But, you know, I've been in the tech space since the 80s. My first job was actually with Atari. You know, you know, we don't have to go through the history. I think your previous podcast may have covered that quite well. But, you know, I've basically been at the early days of technology. You know, my first computer were the Texas Instruments. Then I moved on to the Commodore and then the Atari ST, which is where I sort of found my early, I guess, tech career. Uh, and then when I came to Hong Kong in 93, I built one of Hong Kong's first internet service providers called Hong Kong Online. And then later on, I built Outblaze, which was kind of verse first version of cloud computing services, uh, which is kind of when, when we met, right? And uh, and so <clears throat> through all of this journey, I guess it's the an experience and knowledge that I guess you just pick up as you sort of just live through these experiences, uh, which I think ultimately culminated in the building of what I have built most recently with Animal Com Grants. But yeah, I've been at the intersection of Tech and really tech culture I would say um, this, you know um, and building it out of Hong Kong mostly for for the better part of the last 30 odd years
0: So tell us a little bit about your your company today Anacom brands. Tell us how it all started like day one what what, what was the thinking how did it come about how, what for people wanting to learn how to build a company like this what what, what did you do?
1: Well, I mean, first of all, there is no secret recipe in terms of um, how, how to sort of build a company of scale. I think sometimes you just stumble into it, sometimes you find it, and you go through a journey and having determination. One of the main things that we always wanted to do with every business we built, that mind you, we don't always get there, right? Um, and, you know, I've built many businesses. Um, some have done much better than others, some haven't worked out at all, right? And I think the, the, the key thing, though, is every time we build a business, we want to build a business that has sort of um, impact. Uh, and purpose. Right? And I mentioned that in, the, in, in your earlier podcast, right? Uh, try to build something that will have some lasting effect. <clears throat> because if not, then at least from our perspective, it's, you know, what's the point, right? Because, uh, you know, we, we want to enact some change that we think will be positive. So in the early days, even when we built Helplays, you know, everyone was relying on our email services. And even though, you know, it was really tough, right? And I think this is the part where, it's, where, where I think it's important. is if, if a business is going through difficult times, and you're building for purpose that is larger than yourself, then tough times don't feel so tough because you know you're building for something more meaningful than just the next day or maybe the next paycheck, right? And, and you're willing to sort of push the envelope. But if, you, if you're if you building just sort of, you know, you're not quite sure why you're building it. Right? You're, you're making money or, or, you know, it looks like it's really profitable. Then, you know, profits are typically not the first thing you make when you, when you build a business. Then it's really hard to sort of do that, right? And I think... This is kind of the intersection of, of with the email business. We came to realize that this is the beginning of the dot com bust, actually. But we had so many people who relied on our email services, and we saw the numbers grow. And people were still sending more emails to each other, and you know, making relationships and, and building businesses on top of our platforms. We realized that we were offering something really important. You know, this was in 1998, right? I think the world internet population was maybe in the hundred million range or less. I don't know what it was. It was very small, though. Um, and we saw that and we said, you know, we can't quit now. We can't stop. This is something much more important here. And I think this sort of what drove it forward. And, you know, we slogged through until 2008, 2009 when IBM bought that business and became and opened up the first computing, cloud computing lab here in this part of the world. So anyway, going back to Animoca Brands, we started originally in 2014 with a, a different vision, actually. Right? In 2014, when we spun out Animoca from a, a gaming business, uh, which was called Animoca, just to confuse everyone a little bit more, um, was a business focused around brands. Uh, and the idea was originally to sort of um, bring, you know, we saw a trend where children were getting more connected. And so one of the things that I had an interest in at the time also was, you know, children education, you know, we built the Dalton, uh, the Dalton lab and, and that, that type of area and sort of, you know, using mobile apps and technology and brands and bringing it all together. So the purpose really started off with a very different, very different direction around sort of children. And, um, and sort of children and technology and, and using brands to leverage that and maybe eventually go to education. I then actually went off and uh, sort of focused much more on sort of the educational side and the business was running sort of at a time without, with with other management. And so as it so happened to be, things went kind of wrong. And in 2017, I came back pretty much to uh, help the business because at that point, you know, uh, you know, the company <laughs> wasn't worth a lot. It was listed on the Australian Stock Exchange, really, really struggling. One of the main reasons... Why it struggled was, you know, in the beginning it was doing well, but the app store uh, had completely sort of de-emphasized anything related to children, and it related to COPPA, because what happened was is that uh, sort of the Children Online Privacy Protection Act in the U.S. decided that apps were not necessarily good things, and they basically started penalizing everyone that was doing stuff in the area, even if they were educational focused. And we were dependent on the platform, which was, you know, Apple mostly and Google, and as in the beginning, they were telling everyone, make build apps for families and children and a big family section. And then when Coppa said, hey, this is going to be a problem, Apple actually completely de-emphasized family. And today, when you try to look for the kids section in the App Store, you have to go several levels deep. And, you know, you have a strong background in, in, in sort of technology marketing, and you know what that means for discovery. Basically, your your business was toast. And so it just basically gradually declined because Apple decided to defocus on a children and kids emphasis as to not sort of attract the sort of potential regulatory issues that sort of children focused, you know, gaming, entertainment may, may bring, right? And so so that was the net outcome effect. And uh, I, I came back in, restructured the business, and I ended up um, sort of, uh, as, I, as I was really looking at sort of, you know, what to do with the business, I had made actually originally a personal investment in a company in Vancouver that was ultimately involved in building this little thing called CryptoKitties. And we made a decision at the time that, you know what, actually this company, what this business is doing, that's the future. Um, and we saw something greater, like, a, like the purpose that was very, very important. Sort of that sort of the light bulb went off and decided that we're gonna put this into Animoca Brands as a platform because it owned the brands and also that we thought it was the right thing to do. And so I basically sort of took the reins of that business and, and sort of grew, grew with an emphasis on non-fungible tokens um, sort of from really late 2017 up until today and continuing. And we think we're still very early in that journey. Um, and so so that's how that started. So, you know, the lesson really is, it was really serendipity, circumstance, right? Um, and, 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 and the desire to do something important and good, but not necessarily knowing what that was in the beginning, because it was sort of a... But, you know, I think, you know, if I reflect back, if our gaming business was doing quite well, right, and things were growing, then maybe the whole opportunity around non-fungible tokens would come much later to us, because... We, um, you know, we didn't need to change, right? Which is the classic sort of incumbent struggle. So I think it's a bit of everything, right? It's not, it's not a, you know, uh, it's... it's. A, but when we saw non tangible tokens, we really we really saw wait, this is going to be so meaningful in, in so many ways.
0: So, so for those listening, I mean, if you haven't heard of NFTs at this point, I don't know where you're living exactly, uh, but everyone's probably heard of it. But I certainly feel like in 2017, I, I hadn't heard of it personally. I mean, I feel like it's in the last 12 months, it's become... I think every other sentence has blockchain or NFT in it, but, uh, but you're ahead of your time yet again yet, which is, which is just typical of how you operate. But tell me, how did you know that that was the future? What, what, what made you realize that? Was there a, was the aha moment? What exactly was it that made you realize? It? I think I'm only realizing it now is kind of what I'm saying. So how did you realize it back in 2017??
1: <laughs> Well, I think the realization came when we really saw CryptoKitties, which is you know, one of the sort of elements where I think many of us in the NFT space sort of saw the, light, the sort of uh, light bulb moment when we saw CryptoKitties. And what CryptoKitties was really, in and of itself, wasn't necessarily spectacular, right? It was essentially sort of the breeding of digital cats that make more cats, right? So from, a, from the outside, it's like, well, it's digital beanie babies. What's so great about that? And that's obviously sort of the surface. And, you know, you could trade them and all that kind of stuff. But the part that was really fascinating was that, one, the game company, or in this case, Axiom Zen, and later to become Dapper Labs, which you know we were fortunate to be, be one of the early shareholders, um, they uh, don't have any ownership of these assets. In fact, once they sold them, the assets were owned by the players or the users, and they were in control of the supply and demand because they were the ones breeding those cats. And so the consequence was... Uh, so that, that was the first consequence, which was that actually the, the, the studio behind it has essentially given sort of control over the supply to the players. So that was kind of an interesting element there and created a dynamic of community, right? So that's the first one. But the second one was the aspect of non-fungible token is it introduced digital scarcity. And so digital scarcity is a big problem because we don't have that, right? I mean, Web 1, Web 2 was the opposite of scarcity. It was abundance. It was making everything the same and copyable, and that's why we had this incredible distribution of, of knowledge, but it also cheapened that knowledge. It cheapened the value of content to the point where we, we, nobody could make money from content anymore. You know, like nobody on Spotify, for instance, could make money making incredible content. They had to make concerts or they had to do endorsements and making content was simply a promotional thing for you know, other things, which was kind of ridiculous, right? Uh, and that happened because of the fact that you didn't have ownership of that. And non-fungible tokens actually introduced that element of scarcity. And because every single cat that was bred was unique in its own way. And so we then looked at it deeper, right? We didn't just to say, hey, this is really interesting, digital scarcity. We said, well, what if you took that aspect and brought it into the rest of the virtual world? And in gaming, what would happen if you took that technology and moved it into another space that people were in? And sort of we were from the gaming space, so the connection was very obvious for us. At the time so it was very obvious for us to see that actually when you introduce actual digital scarcity what are the new meta concepts that come into play and the very first attraction point was well you could trade them right and so there's an economic reason but the other thing that was important and this became more evolved over time as we began to understand it better because again when we saw it we were fascinated but i would say you know my my level of sort of understanding and my level of sort of sort of passion in this has grown over time because I sort of get to know it better, right? I sort of philosophize about it more, I I get to sort of more involved, I drink more of my my own Kool-Aid, whatever you want to call it, right? I get so deep into it that I'm sort of now seeing things that that I didn't see three years ago, right? It's just the beginning of that journey. And where, where we saw that was that scarcity could be manufactured, which was the initial aspect of, here's a rare item and it could be worth a lot and we'll never make more and on the blockchain it validates it, right? But the second part is, you could have manufactured, uh, that sort of non-manufactured scarcity, the scarcity that we as our users, as the owner of these assets create. And we came to realize that actually the way we have relationships in the physical world is actually non-fungible in nature, right? You know, if you buy a pair of shoes, you know, you have a relationship with that shoe. You know, it's special because you were running with it, you went to certain places, and maybe it's not valuable, but it has a particular relationship only to you. When you buy a wedding ring, for instance, that wedding ring isn't particularly precious, you know, because of the silver that it's made, but uh, it has a very special memory, a very sentimental attachment to you. And that's something, you know, we all do as humans because we're not robots, right? We have feelings and emotions and sentiments. Um, You know, it's, it's aspects of culture. And that is something in the digital world we never had before. And so we started saying, well, what if I could keep my virtual sword forever? And every memory that I did, every raid that I completed, every friendship that I made while I played these games. And that's kind of really when the penny dropped and we said, wait, 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 wait!" right? This is amazing. This could be something really big. And so that's when we decided we're going to go all in. And so sort of in early 2018, you know, since early 2018, you know, we made over 50 investments in the NFT space. We built some of the larger NFT uh, sort, of, uh, sort of companies in the space at the moment. Um, but it was a lonely field, right? Uh, we were one of the few that saw it. Um, and everyone else really didn't for the time being, um, and uh, and but now it's come to a point where there's so many new projects doing NFTs. <laughs> I don't even know what's going on anymore in terms of the new projects. But there was a time where we knew every project that was that was uh, taking place.
0: Yeah, I'm going to put myself in the category of maybe some of my listeners. And initially, I I, I didn't get it. I, I felt like it was potentially you know the word Ponzi was thrown around. You know, like <clears throat> somehow. It's not real. How can it be worth this? But over time, I, you know, I've also come to like be a believer and you start to realize just the huge scale potential of this. But but I, I wonder, you know, with, with the what actually happened with the Crypto Kitties, for example, what, what was the end conclusion of that? Is, is it is it still today? It's still there. Still there. Yeah.
1: And the whole, yes. And the whole point is it's maybe not as popular as it was three years ago, but it's still there. And here's the point. It's there forever because it's on the blockchain and you can own these assets forever. And whether you think they're valuable or not is a different thing. And I think the other thing to think about is our relationship with non-fungible tokens don't need to be valuable ones. You don't have to think of NFTs as something that must be worth millions of dollars. That's what catches the headline, of course, right? But it's like saying everything in the world has to be a Mona Lisa, who said that, right? You know, most of our relationships that we have are with, with with our objects and assets are you know not valuable in terms of dollar sense, but valuable to us emotionally and, and sentimental wise, right? Mm-hmm. So you know, I keep my crypto kitties as a memento, for instance, right? And other people trade them because they want to have a collection. They want to do to complete their series of crypto kitties and put stuff together. You know, baseball cards, football cards, whatever you want to call it. There's a collector mentality that exists there as well. But I think the the broader meta where we think this becomes so important is that we think, and the reason we're addressing it from gaming, is that it is really the beginning of a property rights movement. So, you know, this is the purposeful project, right? And the purpose here, you know, what is the great purpose here? And the great purpose here is that we want to basically give digital property back to the hands of those who ought to own it, which is every digital netizen in the world, right? You ought to own your digital property. You ought to own your digital life, but you don't own anything. You exist on the platform. Right? I mean, you know, when you if you if you, if you broadcast on Twitter, or on 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 Instagram or on TikTok, what if TikTok says I don't like you, you're toast, right? And what rules do you have? Is there a judiciary? Is there a legal system? Is there some kind of appeals approach? Actually, there's nothing, right? If you get banned, you're banned, and you got, to, and unless you know someone, you know, um, you're 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 out of luck, right? And that's the digital world today, right? And the reason why blockchain as a technology becomes so valuable is. It becomes a judicial layer because it's not owned by anyone. You know, that asset ownership is now validated in a system that is owned by many, actually by millions, in which nobody can alter that. That's why when I send you a Bitcoin, it is a real Bitcoin. Value aside, I know I own that Bitcoin. And no Facebook and no Amazon or even government can say, I want to take that away from you. Right? That that is truly yours. And that property right is the foundation of all rights, right? In terms of when you think of us as a sort of people, as a community, right? If we don't have property rights, then what does democracy mean? What does Bill of Rights mean? What does human rights mean? Nothing, right? If I don't if I can't own my basic property, right? And that's what's missing in the digital world. And so as we evolved in that space and realized actually, this is not just about gaming and NFTs and making sort of making gamers more money or making more sort of opportunity. This is about sort of redrawing where the web ought to have gone with Web3 and basically creating a sort of true digital equity through NFTs.
0: So getting a few questions in from people listening, I mean, I guess um, you're, you're such an expert on this. I think some people might be uh, scared to ask a question because it might sound stupid. But I, but I think just asking some stupid questions, feel free, everybody. No problem. Don't, 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 don't I'm also learning. So uh, well, that's why Yat's here to help us. But, but how, do, how do the pricings of things like NFTs get set? I mean, I know you could I guess it's market demand, right? Is, is, it, is it that simple?
1: Yes, it is market demand, right? Um, and, you know, you can sort of when you think of it from the context, most famous NFTs are because of art, because art is one of those things that is sort of intangible, right? Or oh, why is it special? Why is it rare? Why is it valuable? And, you know, at the end of the day, like with any auction, you only need two to determine the price. You know, two people who want it, they'll make a price, right? And that's effectively what happened with people. You had two whales that wanted that that value, mm-hmm. and you know for them the amount of money was maybe not that much. And you could say, well, that seems outrageous. But then you know why is a Picasso worth what it is? Is it actually really worth that much? It is worth that much to some people, but it's probably not worth that much to most of the world because they can't afford it or they think it's ridiculous. So so it's the same it's the same sense. But the majority of NFTs we think are going to be the ones that have utility, the ones that are used inside a game, the ones that are used in platforms. You know, NFTs can also be used as contracts, right, where you basically sort of determine sort of what's inside a contract. It can be used as keys to unlock assets, right? It's, it's, a, it's in effect, a token that has rules in it, right? And, and that's basically what NFTs really mean. But, you know, one of the things here you should imagine, like, like without virtual cars with F1 Delta Time, when you sort of race the cars, you know, people are owning this property so they can rent them out or they can sell them to others or they can use them. They're making real yield. So there's a calculable return, Right? In the same way that when you're buying a taxi medallion, you have a calculable return of someone who drives a taxi. You know, whether it's a good return or bad return, that is the market demand aspect. And that is how, for instance, in our game, F1 Delta Time, the assets are calculated. They're not calculated in most cases because they are valuable art assets. Some are because they're unique. Like when Meta bought the 111. he paid an incredible price because he wanted the first one because he wanted a piece of history, right? So you have kind of that. It's like it's like maybe the first edition Tesla, as Tuberdor put it. However, for most of the players, it's just, well, what is my return when I play the car? When I go racing, do I earn $10,000, $20,000, $5,000? And you know, we have players in our game who are making 30,000 US dollars a month playing, right? And so that means from an investment standpoint, well, if I'm spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on my assets, it may not seem like such a bad investment anymore because I have a very measurable return right? So there's that a logical conclusion to this. So non-fungible tokens aren't just sort of, you know, pretty pretty JPEGs, as some of the critics would put out. There's real utility in them.
0: Yeah, I think, that, like you said earlier, I think the headlines sometimes confuse people. So, for example, when you read that um, uh, Jack Dorsey's first ever tweet gets sold for millions, I think people just can't understand why that would be that valuable, right? It, it's not really well, a utility, is it, in that case? It's...
1: Well, it isn't. But the thing is, then you're buying really an expensive autograph, right? And right. and again, sort of, if you get sort of the very first autograph of Mick Jagger or Michael Jackson, you know, what is that worth, right? Mm. You know, why is a uh, Honus Wagner sort of baseball card worth I think three point seven million dollars? I don't know, right? Yeah. But it was worth <laughs> something to someone, right? Yeah. And you know, um, and and you know, art is one of these interesting things, or autographs or collections, one of the interesting things, um, because it's not only about, oh, I get to own this thing and special, you're really buying into a community. You're kind of buying into the membership of that, right? Which is the same thing with art. When you're buying a Picasso, are you buying just the one Picasso? No, you're a club of Picasso owners now. That in itself has some kind of status. It's not just because I own a Picasso and I love the oil canvas that's on it or something, that could be part of it, but you're part of that club. You know, our relationship with brands isn't one that is based on pure value calculation. Our brand relationships that we have, that we love, comes with the association that the brand delivers. Why do I prefer Adidas to Puma, to Nike, to Asics? And they're all shoes, and honestly speaking, you know when you think of the pure utility, they run pretty well. <laughs> all of them are pretty good shoes, right? However, some swear on Nike and some swear on Asics. Why? Because of what the brand identifies. So when I buy an Asics shoe versus a Nike shoe, I'm choosing to be part of a community. Our relationships with our clothing for instance is a great example of that You know, why is gucci worth as much as they are <laughs> honestly the fabric is probably not worth that much i personally like my you know like bossini's and giordanos right uh-huh. um but, but people buy, buy buy gucci because it says something about who they are and they're part of the membership of something and that's value right value isn't just the pure tangible oh it's something that's valuable in terms of money it's, it's, it's who I want to be with. It's what I want to be associated with. And that's the power of non-fungible tokens.
0: I think that the relationship and the emotion that you're talking about there is, is actually an undertapped element of what brand is. I mean, that brand is just an emotional attachment in, in general, that's original Absolutely. thinking, isn't it? I, ju- I just interviewed the founder of Reebok. Uh, he's he's um, the shoe company. He's, he's 80, I think he's 82 now. And uh, he was just talking about the emotion he has every time he sees someone wearing a, a, a Reebok shoe. And uh, we, we were talking about whether or not in the future people will own digital shoes, you know, whether that will be, uh, you know, on the avatar for example, because that, that plays another part, doesn't it? I mean, there is a digital universe. You have a digital profile. That's all going to play yeah, a part, right?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, and they're all moving into that space. I mean, Nike is doing it now. Other, other shoe companies are definitely looking uh, at, at sort of launching um, sort of uh, digital fashion wear because, right. again, it's just attaching themselves into the metaverse.
0: Mm. Now, I know you're very passionate about education, and I know you do a lot of work in this space. So how is NFT going to play out in the education space exactly?
1: Well, a lot of ways, right? So first of all, we think non-fungible tokens is going to be everywhere, right? So let's just talk about, let's just step back and say, well, what is the future going to look like with non-fungible tokens? And then we can talk about why education on this is so important. First of all, we need to reclaim our digital lives. One of the reasons why we don't value our digital lives the same way we do our physical ones is because we don't understand how to value it. And that's the issue right now. That you know, it, What's what's one of the important things in, in digital, digital life? is your privacy and your data ownership. And intellectually, we all say that's important, right? If someone says, is your privacy important? Why, of course it is. Then why are you using WhatsApp? And why are you using Facebook still, right? Well, clearly it's not that important for you because if it was, you would be abandoning these platforms the ones that promise you true privacy and ownership of your data, but yet we still do that. Why? Because we don't know how to value it, because we don't respect that in in the end. And that's the problem because when I get my data, I can't do anything with it. But if I give it to Facebook and they mine it and they create all the information and create the networks of that information and that network intelligence, they then sell ironically back to you, right? This idea that the retargeting is, in one hand, you could say genius from, from a Facebook standpoint because they're reselling what was really yours back to you, right, for a so-called discount price. But the other way to look at it is actually, you know, I don't know, is it highway robbery? It's It's kind of the equivalent of, you know, back when the British were basically sort of um, buying the cloth from India, re, um, uh, producing it in, Indi- uh, in, in the UK, and then selling it back to the Indians, to the people in India, at a premium, right? That was a whole economy. It's completely exploitative. That is our relationship with the platforms. Now, why is NFTs important? It's because NFTs give us this idea that digital property is actually worth something. Now, whether it's worth $100, $1,000, or $10,000, know, the value aspect isn't as important. But you know what? If you own a digital asset in a game or a sword or anywhere like a virtual land, like in our sandbox game, you know, those, those lands are selling for half a million dollars and they have real value and real utility. Well, actually it's worth fighting for now, right? My digital ownership of this land is now valuable. Imagine if you bought a real estate in London and then the government went back and said, actually, we're gonna change land reform. Sorry, none of you own anything. You'll fight for it. It's worth fighting for that. And how and what is a mechanism of fighting for it? Well, you need democracy, you need rights, right? You need you need, a, a, you need accountability and governance that will protect your rights. Mm-hmm. And that is essentially the basis of it. But if you don't own property, if you don't own sort of the base worth protecting, then w- democracy may be meaningless. You know, you, why should I even bother? Because it doesn't matter whether I own, whether, whether I fight for it, because I have no value from it. Mm-hmm. And so why gaming becomes the tip of the spear is because we already exist in the gaming world with all of those virtual assets. Right? We're already paying all this money. We think we own it, but in fact, we don't. And so starting from that base, we can educate, you know, billions of people who are playing games who already have a relationship with virtual assets that is one of ownership and tell them that's not real ownership, in fact, it's rental. But imagine if you had real ownership, what would it mean? And that's it. That's the idea, right? I mean, you know, things like property rights and freedom and human rights are actually ideas, right? And they mushroom into something greater because you realize, wait, that is such an important thing it's worth fighting for. Because the meta after that is, when we think uh, owning our virtual property is worth fighting for, then we'll fight for data privacy. Then we'll fight for things that are important for digital lives. Then we want our digital data and we won't give it to Facebook or we won't give it to the platforms unless we get what's right for us, So that's the thing. So why does education play into this? Because education is the area where we have to start telling younger generations who are already in there what that means. The other thing is, when you have ownership of these assets, right? Our children are all playing games and all of them who are playing games are already having a relationship with virtual assets in some way. What they're really learning at a young age is about money, it's about value, it's about property rights. And what better way to teach uh, sort of our children about what's important than, uh, than doing it at a young age Because we don't teach that at school, right? We don't teach our children about economic systems, about value uh, in terms of, you know, by the time, that's why when they go to college, they get fleeced by banks and by credit card companies, pay high interest rates, because they don't know any better, right? Why should our children not go to college and already have a portfolio or know how to balance their books or actually have investment income, right? Capital is one of the biggest problems, one of the biggest inequity issues in the world because, you know, the, the people don't have it. Right. Labor isn't worth that much anymore because of the fact that of AI and everything, that's all sort of you know, making labor cheaper and cheaper and less valuable. But capital is what you need. And there's a whole new layer of digital capital that we ought to be owning. And that's kind of broadly sort of the promise of you know Bitcoin at the start and sort of Ethereum and so on as well, that you can own sort of that digital capital. But the broader context is that actually you need to own everything digitally. And, and it's, it's really yours, right? And it's taking sort of the, your personal ownership that is created from your creativity, from your knowledge base, and actually truly uh, owning that value and, and putting it forward. And that's where education plays in because if I'm playing these games and learning about value and learning about property rights, by the time I'm older, I know it's valuable and I'll fight for it. Mm. And that's, that's, uh, that's perhaps more fundamental than anything else.
0: I also feel like uh, the, the creativity generally is still yeah. undervalued. You know, I, I feel like pe- people, if 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 even today, and I, I'm I'm, in, I'm I've spent a long time in Hong Kong, you know, but I'm now in London. It's a very artistic city, actually. Lots of lots of creative people here, but it's still very much seen as, oh, you know, they're an artist. They you know they're not making any money, sort of thing. And then, oh, look, he, you know, he, he, he's in finance. He's he's you know he's working in the city. He's making loads of money. You know, like somehow, value still the creativity. side. do you think do you think NFTs and and, and the future is going to give creativity finally the value it deserves?
1: Absolutely. And in fact, I think if anything, it redraws uh, the fact that creativity and individuality is much more respected than it is today. You know, you take a look at a platform like Spotify, you know, wonderful in the sense that it's made music available in in broad ways, but terrible for diversity of music. You know, I grew up in Austria. I have an actual classical music education. I can't use it to listen to classical music because I can't find anything because, because everything is badly organized. Because perhaps most of the people who listen to Spotify or maybe the owners of Spotify don't particularly care about classical music, and it's de-emphasized, right? And actually, you know, I think a lot of people would appreciate more classical music if there was a proper way of indexing it, mm-hmm. and Spotify doesn't do that. And it's not gonna put money into it because it doesn't make sense for that because they're trying to appeal to the largest denominator, not to the niche factors that are out there. But actually, if you pull together these niche communities, which is what the original internet was so good at, you can unlock that value. Right? Because it actually, you know, uh, you know, millions of users in one platform is big enough actually to to make a very, very strong, compelling business case. But in the world of platforms today, you can't do that because you'll get crushed by the big guys. And so that hurts creativity. And the other thing is this, uh, you know, and, and there are several people out there saying, you know, oh, you know, crypto isn't great. NFTs aren't great because sort of it makes it speculative and there's money involved and artists and creators should only focus on being creative I say bullshit, right? And the reason why I say bullshit is it's because creators don't understand about money and value that they get taken advantage of every single day, right? They sign contracts, essentially, or they get abused, right? They get their rights taken away because they don't know how to understand the law, right? And so by saying this convenient excuse by saying, oh, you shouldn't know about this stuff because you need to focus on being creative, the business person who deals with the money aspect inadvertently because of the human nature that many people have will take advantage of you. What's the best way to defend yourself? It's knowledge. Right. Mm -hmm. And so you need to, you, they need to know this and NFTs deliver that. And also, you know, now it redraws that that scene. If I sell an art that I've made now it's standard that I, as the original artist should be getting a cut of every single sale, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, that completely changes the way that you think about sharing with an artist, but you as the ultimate buyer of the artist, that satisfies you because you're like, Hey, that's great. Cause I bought this art and I know that whatever I paid for a portion goes to the original artist. I feel much happier doing this. The other thing is that the original artist, because of blockchain knows that you bought it, at least he knows your wallet. He's got a connection. He doesn't have to ask Facebook or pay Facebook to get access to his own customer. He knows who that is because it's on chain and you guys can talk to each other because you have a direct relationship on the distributed ledger. So it cuts out the middleman, but it doesn't, you know, and I I don't like the word cutting out because actually it's not fair to say you need middlemen to help distribute and discover, but it puts them on an equal footing. It essentially makes sure that they don't have that abusive control that they have because then they end up becoming monopolies because it's the nature of business. It's the nature of zero-sum thinking. And here now it sort of uh, foolproofs that in a sense where they can still help you with distribution. And still maybe even take a cut for sort of having facilitated it, but not taking away all your value, which is what's happening mostly today.
0: I'm enjoying some of the comments, people, you know, saying this is just amazing, and then one person says this is, this is uh, really hard to understand, this is over my head and I'm thinking, that's why Yat has a billion dollar company, and you do not yet have one, John you, know, you have to, I, I, even myself, I'm learning from Yat, I've been following NFTs for a while, and learning from, I, I think, uh, how it works through Yat, and I think that actually making yourself aware of the opportunity can change your life, I was wondering do you think, I mean, I want to get back to like you know, the amazing achievement of the company you've, you've built, I mean, you've built many companies, frankly that you've done really well, but the fact you've just raised uh, oh, $88,888,888 which for anyone not in Asia um, maybe you don't realize why that number did you raise but it's a lucky number eight right but, but I want to get back to that in a second just before we go there and talk about I want to talk about how you raised that money because I think a lot of people could learn from you about that process but just before we go there I just wanted to make sure I wanted to ask do you think things like um, you know let's say Facebook I mean they must be thinking about this too right I mean are they going to have to disrupt themselves to get into this space I mean I know they tried to get into crypto but that hasn't managed to happen right so you know
1: so i mean first of all you have to understand that all those guys are super smart right so there's no question that they're looking at this space right we know that but they have a classic innovators dilemma as as all companies do they're making so much money there's nothing broken about the way facebook is run as a business maybe their ethics or the way they operate their business might be broken but not the sort of you know the the structure of the company which is a for-profit entity and from a for-profit perspective, you would say, it's working just fine, so why change anything? And that is the innovator's dilemma. They can't change that so easily unless they disrupt themselves. You know, people say, oh, but Apple disrupted themselves. But people forget that when, by the time Apple disrupted themselves, they were already almost bankrupt, right? right. Had nothing yeah, to lose at that
0: point. point, yeah.
1: Exactly, so there was nothing to lose, right? Mm. But if you're Facebook or if you're EA or whatever, you have a whole bunch to lose, right? right. So you have to be careful around that. And actually, that's been the history of innovation, and that's the opportunity for companies like ourselves and others in the space to, to emerge, mm. because otherwise, if they were always able to disrupt themselves, then there would be no new innovation from you guys, because they would always basically just do it, right? Um, and so I think I think that's 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 a that's a big thing. But they're definitely looking at it, and the way I think of it is that they will be forced to move into it uh, eventually because of necessity, not because they want they they really they really want to.
0: I mean, the other side is it, and that's, that's the funny thing about history, isn't it? People always think, oh, it's too late for me, Google's already there, or it's too late for me, Facebook's already there. And, and uh, time and time again, these big organizations, Kodak, for example, you know such an old story, but you know, still relevant, isn't it? That, that something will come along, and I think this is it. I think this is the disruption to all the big boys that can't potentially uh, change. And so, as you say, it's a great opportunity for, for businesses like yours to come in and know what needs to get built, and build it from the ground up as opposed to them that need to kind of convert their old business and try to make it a new business. But it's why, why did Facebook have trouble getting its cryptocurrency going? I mean, clearly they tried, right? Scale might be a problem. Yeah. Right?
1: In the case of Facebook, uh, Libra, which is the Libra case, it was really trying to sort of just be a cryptocurrency. So it wasn't really trying to do what we're doing uh, or what generally sort of, um, sort of blockchain is doing. It was really, you know, they, they saw the opportunity, they saw the situation. And I think they said, you know, we need to be a part of that. And frankly and this is the part that's always dangerous when you're the largest platform out there and you might be the one that uses your infrastructure ahead it's actually one way in which you could arguably control the ecosystem right if everyone ends up using a blockchain that was built by facebook or by amazon or google whichever you call it and suddenly it became the de facto standard we then actually end up getting sort of back into the platform sort of platform Mm -hmm. story right that's and 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 so that's one way to control it but you know Fortunately, that didn't happen, right? And actually, it was generally sort of halted mostly by Congress because they were already wary of the awesome power that Facebook had because of its effect on sort of media and, you know, fake news and everything else, that they were very worried, well, what happens if the value system and money systems end up being potentially controlled by someone like Facebook? Actually, that would be even worse because they would argue we have more power than the government. One may argue, except of military, that facebook already has more influence than the government right mm. so so i think that's 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 you know a matter of national security and i think they they certainly looked at it from that lens. And,
0: Aren't they and a bit? Isn't that, hasn't that ship sailed the- though? I mean, they, I, I'm shocked that they had the ability to recognise <laughs> stopping Facebook on the cryptocurrency was the right move. I think they've already missed the boat though, because it's already influencing elections. It's already been manipulated uh, in that way. In
1: terms of controlling, you know, what's happened with Facebook and so on, and the influence that online has, I mean, it's a it's a result of that, right? Which is mm-hmm. the fact that we can no longer process all this information, and we've come to rely on platforms that are not subject to effect, effectively the the rules that we grew up with mm. because they're private enterprises so this sort of dystopian idea of oh the future is controlled by corporations actually we're here already right. it just isn't happening in the physical world it's in the virtual world where all of this is happening and is influencing the world in physical ways right uh so 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 by the time libera came about uh the wariness of facebook was already sort of there you know if maybe you know facebook was building a cryptocurrency Five or seven, five or six years ago, maybe it wouldn't have been as big of an issue, but you know, it was uh, definitely a big, big issue when they put it, um, put that forward. Mm. I, I think uh, one important thing is, you know, when you're building businesses, and this is ever more important today than it was before, is that this new wave of businesses that are being built is about what's better for the customer, right? And and sort of, and then you know, even when you think about Google's early slogan, so sort of, I think it was like "Don't do evil" or something, right? It was very much the intention of building a business that it was going to, at its heart, be a good company and sort of serve the community that they were serving. And that was the basis of it, right? You know, People don't build businesses thinking that it's going to be something that um, is going to hurt people, right? Nobody, <laughs> nobody wants to, to okay. do that. Uh, and, uh, but eventually, when you become a monopoly and we become too large, then, uh, then you start sort of getting to this area where you want to protect what you have. Mm. Uh, and, uh, and suddenly, you start getting you know, out of need Protective, build, build walls around you, uh, becoming not inclusive, right? Excluding people that might be competitors. I mean, how many businesses have been sank because, you know, Google didn't like them or Twitter basically deplatformed them or Apple said, I don't like it. I mean, and how many lives were affected through, you know, unilateral decisions that in the physical world, if that happened, you know, the government can't go down and say, you know, mate, you can't run that shop here anymore. It's going to shut down.
0: I think these institutions right, right. these institutions have lost their, their, their ability to buy back, haven't they? Because, I mean, I feel like in the standard oil times, you know, the, the oil giant, you know, one company owns it all, let split it up, it's not allowed to be a monopoly anymore. They all went on to be massive companies in their own right. So even, you know, breaking them up didn't make any difference. But I don't feel like, they, they, I mean, social is still not regulated, for example, is it? I mean, it's...
1: Correct, yes. I think the original idea behind antitrust was to take care of that, right? But I think antitrust has lost its effect because the pace of innovation and technology is so rapid that you can't, you know, the judicial structure that was meant to protect people was too slow Mm. for the pace of innovation that's taking place. And so they can't handle it. So you need a new infrastructure that can keep people accountable, but you need a new system of truth, Mm. a new way in which you can be accountable. Mm. And that's why broadly NFTs aside, why the promise of blockchain is so fascinating. Mm. Because actually now, through the distributed ledger, you have a form of truth that is immutable, Mm. right? Even if you you lied, it's there. If you say the truth, it's there. The root is all there. And that's the point about why blockchain becomes powerful because it scales. Mm. You know, people talk about, oh, it's slow to process, but it's still faster than a wire transfer, right? right? It's still faster than me having to check the records of where it came from you know if i see something on the news and it says cnn said this how do i know it's true actually i don't because because i can't tell anymore what's
0: real or not yeah i think that's a big problem in general i mean that's that 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 then even if it's true it's it's their version of the truth it's not necessarily Correct the absolute truth yeah Yeah. i mean i i think i could just you know what i i think i just miss sitting sitting with you and 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 debating this stuff because it's literally a fascinating subject i could talk about forever and i'm conscious that uh, it's very late for you in hong kong you've had a long day and i don't want to keep you forever but i just wanted to uh, pull it back to to um for my audience to learn and and for those folks listening in hong kong to learn you know how you raised this amount of money i mean what i'm well, just imagine the pitch you know what what how did you was it was it easy was it literally like hey listen uh NFTs are the future uh, and this is what we're doing and people went here's here's all the money you need or how, how did it how did it play out
1: yeah. so first of all um we actually didn't need to raise that kind of money um because we, the business already at that point was doing quite well i mean again as you said earlier at the start you know, if you haven't heard of NFTs at that point, then, you know, maybe you're hiding under a rock. And, you know, our portfolios in general were doing really well and our business was doing quite strongly. However, you know, you know, with the you know, people started approaching us. So typically what happens often on unicorn raises, at least in what I've experienced, is people come to you mm. and say, oh, you know, we'd like to raise some money. Right. Um, it's, 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 it's funny because at that point, it's actually uh, fairly easy because the situation is de-risked. When you look at our cash flow and you look at the situation, actually, it's very de risk The valuation, some even have said, oh, that seems like a really good deal, right? Comparative to sort of Dapper Labs and other portfolios that have raised at higher valuation. So it's all relative, to be frank, right? But sort of how do we get there? I think the important thing is that we build something with conviction, and it wasn't easy, right? And so what we, you know, people look at this and say, oh, you raised a billion dollars I mean, on a billion valuation. That's wonderful. It's fantastic. But, you know, it was battle scars of time that got us to this moment, yeah. right? You know, we, we didn't just get deplatformed by Apple in earlier days. You know, we got delisted from the Australian Stock Exchange because they didn't like the fact that we were dealing in crypto. And they said, we don't like that. So one year ago, we were delisted from a stock exchange. Man. right? And, yeah. and, uh, and, you know, because they were nervous about the fact that we were dealing in NFTs, and it was tokens, and it was maybe an ICO, and it was weird. And it's just, just, it just wasn't appropriate. You know, um, so we went through all of these sacrifices, right? And again, if you're building something that you believe is greater than you and that is purposeful, then you will persevere towards that mission. And eventually what happens is those who see, you know, we were also blessed by the fact that we did have not as big an investor group, but investors who supported our mission. And we're grateful to them because they saw our vision and said, this was worth backing. And maybe the moment hasn't yet arrived but it's worth backing, right? And we want to see this future so well supported. Because you know what? It's not just about money, right? So you want to bring with you investors who don't want, uh, sort of, who don't do it just for return. You know, everyone wants to make a profit, that's okay. But you can make purposeful profit too, right? Mm. And the best investors are actually the ones who are mission-driven. Mm. Not in terms of, oh, I need to invest only in something that is a social good. More about, okay, that's a that's a vision worth worth, worth building out and I'm, I'm there for you for 10, 20 years or whatever until... make that happen you know everyone says that about the best vcs it's true right or investors right they they're there to back you all sort of along the way you know i think we have a perfect stock exchange example of that it's called tesla right on the basis of sort of the the pure fundamentals of the business certainly you know what is it six months ago tesla in and of itself probably in fundamentals wouldn't be worth as much which is why everyone tried to short it right But it's impossible to be worth the money.
0: It's been valued more than all the other car companies combined. And it sells a fraction (laughs) of the amount of cars. It just doesn't make sense. right? So
1: what are you doing when you're buying into Tesla is you're not buying into the present. You're buying into the future. You're buying into the future. You want to see whether you agree with that premise or not. Mm. Right. It's the fact that, you know, community powered sort of value is one of those things that actually is underlying all is there and used to be exclusively controlled by Wall Street. So 1% decided that that was the way value was done mm. because they had exclusive monopoly of this. Mm. But with sort of broader awareness of financial investing, which is still small, right? Uh, and the fact that we got to see all the abuses that happened in the 1% who knew how the systems work like front running right you know and uh you know with robin hood or with all this stuff that's happening people going what i didn't know that happened Mm -hmm. you know so so no wonder the sort of small retail investor never had a chance against institution because they never dealt with never had the same sort of weapons at their disposal right Right. it was like it it was the equivalent of they're riding with horses and they've got nuclear weapons Mm -hmm. And you're supposed to win, right? Mm-hmm. That was not something that was available to them. And this is why sort of blockchain and crypto started coming in. And now that sort of thinking has come into, into, into the stock market. And so you see several companies. Like if you look at, for instance, green organic companies that are sort of you know uh, selling sort of the future of food, you know, they're not sort of buying into it because they're like, oh, you know, I'm gonna make a big profit. Maybe that's a big part of it too. But it's the future I want to see. These guys are doing good things. I'm, and it's not about putting in all of my life savings. Mm. It's about putting in something, you know, it's a vote in the future mm. with my money. And if I'm right, because I want to see that future built, then I will also make money from that. Mm. And that's, that's what's changing, right? Our idea of value isn't only based on that. And that's one of the reasons, by the way, why we raised, uh, so eight eights, right? Eighty-eight dollars. Mm. Uh, 800 it's eight eights mm. because it's meant to be culturally significant. You know, I, there was one, you know, who shall not be named, but a media outlet that said, that basically said, "Oh, we can't cover your story because, you know, you you didn't raise 100 million at least, as if, you know, as if as if we couldn't have right." It was like, "Oh yeah." And there was another headline that says, "You know, you almost raised 89 million dollars." Obviously, you missed the point, right? Yeah. Which is like, you really think we wouldn't have been able to raise, you know, like the extra 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 money? Yeah. No, that wasn't the point. No. They didn't understand it, right? Uh, that actually, you know, again, we're raising, you know, some of those who understood it actually uh, said, "Hey, that was a meme race, right? It was a cultural race, right? Mm. It was, it was symbolic, signified, symbol. we did it exactly, it's yeah. symbolic. I mean, yeah. it was a big moment for
0: us." It, you know, I, I, as someone that grew up in in UK and then mm. spent twenty years of my life in Hong Kong. Before I left for Hong Kong, people said to me, "Oh, you know, Hong Kong was at the time being handed back to the Chinese. It, you know, it's communism." And, you know, you sure you want to live in a communist state and then when, of course, uh, living in England, so, oh, we're a democracy, we're free. You know, when I hear all of this, do you know what it actually makes me think that that, that uh, the blockchain is real democracy. Actually, yes. blockchain can create, uh, like you're talking about there with Wall Street bets and all, all of that sort of movement, like true gathering of people to own their own data, own their own assets and, and not... not Fight back sounds so aggressive, but 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 you know level the playing field at least, you know give you a chance to to fight the institutions that have controlled the system, have controlled the closed system for so long right so I think it's it's really very exciting and I mean I know um, it's also interesting I don't want anybody listening to miss this kind of uh, point you've just mentioned there I think it's quite critical to the psychology of raising money which is actually if you go and build a great business and you build a profitable business or a business that you know you enjoy then you'll be surprised the money comes to you right I mean I spent quite a bit of my career in my early career chasing money and it's really hard to you know you're pitching all the time to get money it's actually really hard the best thing to do is build something where people come to you right which is kind of What you're saying here? You, you did an experiment. I was reading. You did an experiment where you um, you basically let me just read it, make sure I get it right. Um, you la- launched some games, and you well, you had a couple of games, and you sold assets inside those games, right? I'm just trying to look for the article. Um, but that was that was more. was that a test of your model?
1: Ah, yes. So this was an interesting one. I think you're talking about the tower token, exactly. Crazy defense hero,
0: exactly. Yes,
1: and so the the the, the and this was sort of the way you have to experiment and do stuff. And what we decided to do is we we made an experiment. For a game that you know was was actually doing quite well, um, how do we create? How do we succeed in creating an inflationary game economy, which is what typically games are, and give ownership of that game to its players through a token mechanism, um, which would be valued, thereby earnable by the players because they're spending time in the game through play to earn, who can then can sell that vote to whoever wants to direct the future of that game. So the idea was. How do we create a system where the people who play the game can be rewarded for the ones who want to have a say in the game, right? Essentially democracy, you could say, inside the governance of the future of the game. And the grand experiment was that if we succeed in doing that, you know, the the flip side is most people will say, well, I don't care about what goes on in the game. I just want to make some money. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to earn and farm as many tokens as I can as I play the game and just dump the tokens and take off the profit and just mine it, kind of like in a classic exploitative sort of gold mining fashion, right, like how people go in and mine for diamonds, sort of dig a hole as deep as they can, and then move on to the next hole, right, classic exploitation, right, and that's sort of, you know, the the industrial way of thinking, and it could have gone that way, but actually it didn't, actually people started buying into the token Says "I, I, I love this game, I want to have a vote in this game. I actually have a way of directing the future of this game. Let me get in, right? And so now, you know, crypto volatility aside, uh, you know, the, the, the tower token has a market cap of something like 300 million US dollars, you know? I mean, <laughs> it's, right. it's, 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 in some ways you could say that's insane. At one point, it actually touched a billion, which was probably sort of at this hype of exuberance. But the point is that even at $300 million value uh, for a game like that, that is more valuable than many of the big game companies out there. And here's a single game that has a value, why? Because the end users actually want that ownership and they chose to value that game economy at that size. They said, it's worth it to me, right? And I wanna have a vote in how things go. And so I'll buy that token. So people who earn a token, some sold, some didn't, some ended up buying more because they wanted to be able to direct the future of where that game goes, right? And so, you know, our our vision, we're not there yet, right? I mean, much of this is still in development, but our vision is that every one of the games we launch and any one of them, every one of the metaverses will be fully decentralized. If you look at our tokenomics, it's all around the fact that we end up owning only 20% or less, maybe 15% of whatever goes on. And ultimately, if we, for us to see success is that the players own everything and they run everything and they can vote for everything, right? That is success. Because then it will truly have a life of its own and will never die, and uh, and of course it's a little bit like nation building, and you know we're going to sort of sort of have struggles along the way, but that also makes it so incredibly exciting and fun. Mm.
0: Now, I know you're because I, I I've interviewed before you before and I've, I've I've known you for a long time. So I know that you've you worked very hard and diligently, consistently to get where you are today. So so I don't I don't take this you know, next statement too lightly. I know how hard you've ta- taken to get here, but what are you going to spend eighty eight million eight hundred eighty eight thousand eight hundred eighty eight dollars on?
1: Well, yeah, so first of all, one of the big things we're going to, we're going to outside of sort of expansion, you know, we've been very acquisitory, like we bought a lot of companies in the past uh, that we've integrated into basically the Anuga Brands family. And part of the strategy here is that we're buying, you know, know, we're buying really communities, we're buying virtual metaverses that are basically locked, they're rental economies. So maybe, maybe a meta way to say it is we're buying North Korean companies, <laughs> North Korean societies and we're liberating them and turning them into, into democracies. And they all wow. really love it, players, right? this, game, this might I get mean, shut I mean, down
0: it's... very soon, by the way. Yeah, but, yeah, taken I mean, out of context. I mean, you know, so
1: like, so, I mean, what, <laughs> yeah, the, the context of this is really that um, we're basically uh, sort, of, um, sort of liberalizing these closed metaverses into mm-hmm. open ones and actually unlocking incredible value that was always there. Right? One of the issues that non-fungible tokens can, so not one of the issues that game companies have or any kind of plat, sort of uh, anything on the internet today is that everything is permission because of the walled garden. So I can't do anything without permission on any digital object. It doesn't matter whether it's your data or some, something else. Now, imagine if that was true in the real world and I bought a Tesla mm. and I wanted to paint the car and I have to seek permission from Tesla to just paint my car. Mm. Or if I want to hire a driver, and say, oh, you want know, to hire a driver, Tesla, am I allowed to hire this driver, please? And Tesla will go back and either say no, or they'll say, sure, but you've got to pay me 30% every time you use that driver, <laughs> right? mm. It's the platform thing, right? That's, that's the digital world right now. But in order to scale it out, you need to have peer-to-peer. And because you own these NFTs, you can now have peer-to-peer relationships with any service provider around the world that was willing to give you service. And today, this is already happening. You know, our NFTs can be mortgaged. They can be loaned. They can be fractionalized. You know, other people incorporate it in their own games. They do whatever they want because the relationship is one with the owner of the asset, not with the platform. Right? And I think this is this is uh, this is really really important in terms of the future where we can have true digital ownership. And the fastest way for us to get there is to buy sort of uh, entities that already have these communities and essentially free them by delivering true digital ownership. Mm.
0: Now, um, I, I've been personally playing around with BitClout and these other um, cryptocurrencies. Now, I know um, certainly can't get into endorsing anything. That's not what we're doing here on this podcast. None of us are financial experts, but but, uh, but I, I, I do. I I personally really enjoyed what I think is basically the first time I've ever seen uh, in the BitClout system, almost like um, social social currency. I wouldn't even call it cryptocurrency. Where you can you can almost back or support individuals. It's the first time I've seen yes. it. And and do you do you think things like BitCloud are you know the, the first of many? Is this a MySpace before, uh, you know, Facebook kind of model comes along, or or is it, is, is this just generally what's going to happen now going forward? Investing so, in individuals. So,
1: yeah, social tokens and fan tokens have been around for a while. Mm. Uh, in sort of um, small and big ways. Some of the big ones um, are sort of, you know, NFT related projects like, like Whale Shark, for instance, is, is, is a big one. He's also pretty, pretty dominant on, on BitCloud as well. Um, and I think one of the things to think about social tokens and sort of social currency, if you, if you want to call it that way, you know, role being a great example of that right now, um, is, uh, is the fact that it's, you know, what blockchain and crypto does, it can value a community. And actually, if you think about it, every one of us has a community, even your family is a community but the value is intangible because you can't really you know like if you know if 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 you ask me for a favor i don't go to you and say oh sure that'll cost you sort of you know five tokens or or five five dollars or a hundred dollars for that favor you know we just agree on it because you know we're good friends and we help each other out and so we've already created a value system amongst us because you know what happens if someone asks a favor all the time but never gives one back you stop basically interacting with them, right? It's the same thing. So the cost is there. The economic substance of that relationship is already there, but we haven't yet fundamentalized that into some kind of value system. Enter social tokens. Social tokens are designed to try to create a way in which you can sort of create a value money. And in the case of BitCloud, they create a bonding curve around the value of the tokens, the more people buy it, the more valuable it becomes. In the case of uh, Role, they're creating one where the founder of the token ends up issuing tokens and, and sort of has a market demand, essentially almost like a stock exchange of the value of the token. So so everyone has a slightly different approach, but the idea is the same, which is that now I can sort of, uh, sort of offer reward value or receive value for the relationships that I have. Um, and they don't necessarily have to be monetary. Nobody said that owning, you know, like when I when I bought your BitCloud, I'm not expecting to make a profit from it, right? I'm expecting that just to say, hey, you know, I have a relationship with you and 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 uh, and you know we're friends and we were doing stuff you know potentially together and and that's my way of saying that. I'm never expecting that you know I would cash out for 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 a ton of money. That's not why I bought your BitCloud. Some people might, but you know, that's so it's the same thing, right? You no, know, it's it's a, you know it's like someone send, sending you a gift or you go for dinner or someone brings you a bottle of wine. It's just appreciation, right? And it's a way of putting that together. And we and and that's what social tokens is
0: really all about. That's and that's what I love about it. I feel like that's been missing from the system. It's so obvious. I mean, I, I don't want this to make it about an advert for BitClout suddenly, but but I do I do really I am kind of inspired by it. I think I'm inspired by yes. it. I feel I feel like. there's quite a lot of negativity, especially now, I guess, whenever you're listening to this broadcast, it might be today or it might be a week from now, it might be a year from now, but crypto at this very moment is having a bit of a bad week. And and people are all talking about how it's a Ponzi scheme. That's the word everyone <laughs> loves to use for everything that is having a bad week. Um, it's like every bad leader in the world is, is, is Hitler at some point in their career, right? So, but I feel, like, I feel like right now crypto is having a bit of a tough time. But but I'm seeing incredible positivity from, from these things. And I know there's always going to be, every tool can be used for, for evil, right? If you want it to be. But, but it's the first time I've seen that, that spirit, what you've just described there, that like I can, I can actually not just say thank you to someone, which I do all the time. Time, but actually kind of not just put my money where my mouth is but put, put some of my energy where my mouth is you know and, and support people and, and and without any expectation and return right I mean you're you're a prolific angel investor as well you know you invest in businesses you take equity that's fair enough but there's something nice about just saying hey I like you here's a bit of support I don't need anything back right now at all I just want to show show some love and you know that person lifts up does well and and maybe at some point karma comes back to you and there's support right but there's that's the first time i've seen that i mean normally like especially in the social environments like i've got my social media i'm doing all right it doesn't matter what anyone else is doing but when i have a bad day i have a bad day when i have a good day i have a good day but when someone else has a good day now i can also have a good day that's right and that's the first time i've and seen it, it yeah
1: yeah and, and that's the power of community powered uh, really that's community power right if you think mm-hmm. And I think this is where I draw it back to the example of NFTs as well, because in the end of the day, you know, one of the mechanisms of this, how do you value an NFT? So sort of why is sandbox land or F1 delta time assets valuable today? Well, it's valuable because you're buying into a community, you're buying membership into that community, right? And so that's another way of doing it. I mean, imagine you know, for all the fashion brands, going back to the brand topic, had sort of social tokens. How many people would want that? Not because they want to cash out, but because they want to be a part of that membership, that family, that association, that's associated with that, right? And now you can do that on an individual level with with, with social tokens, mm-hmm. and and so Bitcloud is one example, Role is one example, and yes, it's I think it's the makings of a better future. I mean, you know, you know, we 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 were hoping for the better future when the internet first came, and it was it was like that for probably the first ten years, and then afterwards it uh, you know there was too much information, and then the black platforms came and said. Well, We'll manage it for you because you can't handle it, and then we actually inadvertently gave the keys, uh, the keys to our future to them. So it's time to take it back.
0: Yeah. Well, um, I've taken an hour of your time. Um, I, I love talking to you. I've learned so much in, in this chat today. Um, I, I always feel like I'm, I'm so happy when good people are, are doing things that disrupt the world because that means that new disrupted world will be better. So, yeah, thank you for doing what you're doing. And uh, I, I'm really excited to see what happens next. Just capping off, finishing off on a lighthearted note. Um, if you went back and gave some advice to, to you know, younger entrepreneurs starting out today I mean there's, there, a lot of them are being born into this NFT world right now there's probably been about 50 babies born just while we've been doing this podcast they're being born into this world but what do you think if you were starting a business from scratch today would, would it be Animo, Animo, Animoca Brands or would it, what would you suggest to people if they were looking to start a business today
1: well first of all you know I think if you look at sort of anything related to web three I think it was so early Right? I mean, people who have crypto is about 70, maybe 80 million people in the world right now. People who have NFTs is less than a million. Right, and it's tiny. The numbers are big because we went from rental to ownership economics. But it's such an early space, and you know, I'm not suggesting that people just copy what others are doing. There's many, you know, the beautiful thing about a, a sort of, sort of a new sort of space is creativity can be anything you wanted to make. Right. Uh, whether this is NFT, social tokens, whatever that is, I think Web3, building on decentralized platforms, ultimately, right? It doesn't have to be NFTs, right? That's where I think the future should go, right? Because that's basically, you know, maybe as we sit here, maybe someone's hatching up the next social network that's maybe better than BitCloud mm-hmm. as a version of Facebook that gives rights back to users. I mean, we're not building that. Someone else should, right? And there's so many things you can do, right? You know, when 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 I think of the energy, when we all thought about sort of, what the web will give to us back in the mid-90s, right? That's what we're thinking. Oh, we could do all this amazing stuff. And it looked terrible because dialogue yeah. was horrible, <laughs> websites looked like crap. It was just like and everyone when we showed it to them and like, what is this? Right? Really? This is the future, right? Um, you know, we're at that point right now, right? So it does it looks like sort of like line graphics, right? But but uh, you know, we're we're sort of building towards that future. Everything we think, everything in our life is going to be redrawn on the basis of decentralization on the basis that we have true digital ownership of everything in our life right which means everything is up for grabs everything can change and you have a part in making that change so my my mind is like, like I don't I don't think it gets any more exciting than that
0: Fascinating, yeah. And I think if you, if you could just, um, you've got to really sit and think about what's possible. And when you do, I think your head explodes. I mean, I did it this morning because I knew I was talking to you. I sat there and thought to myself, "What? How? What, how could this all play out based on what you're doing?" Um, and a little bit of my brain did explode. It is just incredible the potential, isn't it? Well, yet um, again, thank you for sharing your knowledge and appreciate you so much. Keep doing the great work. I know that uh, that, that there's a big event going on in Hong Kong at the moment, and um, you're you're one of the stars i know you're a very humble person you wouldn't like me calling you a star but you're one of the stars in hong kong not only have you been supporting startups there investing in them helping them mentoring them you're now not only you're leading the charge yet again when it comes to a revolution in in how the world works so yeah thank you for being you i hope to have you back on the podcast very soon it's a pleasure and thank you so much for having me great to see you Yeah, that was amazing as always. I really, uh, I love, I love, um, I just love talking to you, to be honest. It's just, you just, you open up my mind as well to like the possibilities. I think sometimes um, we all get a little bit trapped in what we think is the real world right what we think is possible um and i have to say you know some of my stuff might not date well because about a year ago i was like i'm not sure about nfts i'm not sure you know like i was i was a little bit skeptical because i was seeing some scams going on and i thought people were getting ripped off and and i thought i'm not sure i'm not sure but i've I've completely changed my mind because at the end of the day there's always gonna be people that take advantage of this bad stuff but that's not the people to focus on right you've got to focus on the potential and i think the
1: one thing is you know um and i've gone I've, i've been guilty of this many times as well which is you know, you make a mistake. The power is to be able to say, you know what, actually, mm. maybe it's something to this and maybe I should change my mind. Yeah, exactly. Actually, yeah. The, the, the world belongs to people who can make that, right? Yeah. Not to people who try to always be right. That, mm. that, that, that's
0: not. Yeah. yeah. I think the other thing as well is that, um, you know, like uh, with BitCloud, I noticed it. If people haven't gone onto BitCloud, they haven't spent some time understanding what's happening inside the ecosystem. And I don't know if that's going right. to make it or not, but they, they make a judgment call without knowledge. That's the big that's mistake. Right.
1: Yeah. Because it's like with NFTs, I mean, we didn't talk we about it, but a lot of people, oh, NFTs are bad for the environment, but they haven't even investigated it as, oh, but you could do it on Flow, or you could mm. do it on another, like, you, nobody said it had to be on Ethereum, right, mm. but, you know, it's a, it's it's a lazy argument, right, mm. because it's the, it's also, and I think this is the other thing, it's also because you're not part of it, mm. right, and this, and, and so our job is, to make it more inclusive right Mm. that's that's frankly something you know we can talk about as much as we want Mm. but if we don't make it inclusive enough Mm. then we will lock them out Mm. and then frankly as time goes on actually if they don't join early enough they will be more resentful Mm. right and that's the part where we need to be Mm. um, we need to work harder to bring them in
0: By the way, I think that's actually we're not broadcasting now, so I can say this a bit more in depth. I think that's the problem with democracy. People are told that they've got a a, a say, they've got a part, and then they get left behind, and they get you know the rust belt. They get they don't they feel like they're disenfranchised. They've been told they have control, they actually don't. Right? That's when you have problems.
1: The promise was like that in the beginning, and it worked out for a while, Mm. and then somewhere it went wrong Mm. and didn't course correct, Mm. and now the world is back to a very inequitable place. Yep. Right. Yep. Cool.
0: So, like you said, I think you know the Facebook analogy is a good one because I feel that, that someone didn't say no to Facebook somewhere along the line in democracy, and and, yes. and the the lobbyists won, and and the, the, the wrong people are in control. But look, honestly, yeah, yeah, it's just I just just love chatting to you, and um, I appreciate you coming on the podcast today. Okay. Hopefully, Invest HK will pull the finger out and also um, p- push it out like they promised. But I appreciate you coming on; it was great. I I really enjoyed okay. it. I'll probably watch it back just so I learn some more again. You know. But uh, thank, you. thank you. Thank you. All right. Enjoy, enjoy your evening, okay? Bye. Bye. See you, mate. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Purposeful Project podcast today. If you got any value from this podcast, then do feel free to give us a review and give us your feedback. And if you think anybody out there might enjoy this story of this real-life successful entrepreneur, then feel free to share. And, of course, go and visit purposefulproject.com and join our mailing list at any point. Thanks again for listening.